0: Great. Thanks, Steve. Uh, I, one point, uh, just to follow up on Steve's point on Q and know one of the thing about these types of seminars when we're kind of in a room together is it's not even the questions it's sometimes just other things that people have seen, because we obviously can't mention every point that's on topic. So feel free to also just use that function to add thoughts, things you're seeing that we might not have covered. Um, so, um, my name is Mike Riley. Um, I'm an attorney at Dane Torpy. Um, we're a, boutique real estate firm here in Boston. Uh, Thanks everyone for joining for today's seminar on all of the ways that we are seeing uh, the commercial leasing world uh, impacted currently by COVID-19 and how we think it may impact things on a permanent basis as much as we can tell now going forward. So uh, I think uh, an agenda, very high level agenda was circulated to everyone shortly before this. So that kind of covers the Know, high level points we're trying to get. Um, so we have a lot to get to. So I will turn it over to Nicole, who will introduce herself and also the Newmark team. Hey
1: everyone, so uh, Nicole Riley, and as we normally start out, Mike and I are not related in any way, shape or form. We just happen to have a same last name. Um, I am Hello. counsel at Goodwin Proctor I've been there about six and a half years and I'm in the leasing group. Uh, I've had the great pleasure of working with the Newmark team uh, for a a good amount of that time. And so when this opportunity came up, I figured I would reach out to them uh, because we wanted to start off with basically a market update, right? Uh, I think that this is top of mind for everyone in terms of where we are, where we're going, where we've been. So we have a great team from uh, Newmark here. I'll start with Liz. Uh, Liz is currently the research director for Newmark. She's the seasoned commercial real estate researcher and economist. And she has over 14 years of experience in the greater Boston market and beyond. Uh, if you're not already following Liz on LinkedIn, you really should. Uh, she has frequent uh, posts on market analysis and trends and relevant happenings. And for better or worse, that's basically how Liz and I know each other because I am constantly reviewing and liking her posts on LinkedIn. Uh, she's just such a great resource. So next I'll move to Juliet. Uh, Juliette's currently the executive managing director of the Boston office for Newmark. Uh, She does both landlord and tenant side representation, and her practice is primarily focused on the Cambridge 128 West and suburban markets for office and life sciences. Um, Juliette, I did the math and I think you've been doing commercial real estate for uh, nearly 20 years, which seems absolutely impossible. Juliet's also active in a lot of alumni, real estate, and uh, life science industry organizations and has done a number of panels and events, which is part of the reason why Juliet and I know each other as well. She and I have participated in several together, and we are both frequent attendees of Women's Initiative events and are trying to get Goodwin to, uh, to host the next one with uh, our former First Lady. But so close, we're so close, Juliet. Uh, and then last but not least is Mark Winters. He's currently the vice chairman of the, uh, the, the Newmark office in Boston. Uh, he primarily also focuses on the Cambridge office and lab markets. Uh, Mark's been with Newmark for about five years now after almost 30 years at Cushman, uh, where he was the founding member and managing partner of their global, global life sciences practice. Uh, Mark has been on both sides of the ledger on landlord and tenant sides for several notable transactions. Uh, basically, uh, you uh, throw a name out there and marksman involved in them, uh, whether it's Alexandria, Divco, Matemco, like McCall, Novartis, Pfizer they're they're all in there. So a great panel that we've got here to uh, explain where we are in the market. so I will let them take it away. <laughs> Thank you
2: Nicole and Mike. Um, As you all know, I'm Liz Bertholet, Research Director at Newmark here in Boston. I just wanted to start off um, today's event with a brief look at the economy. As we all know, COVID-19 has seriously impacted growth here in Massachusetts. So um, since mid-March, across the Commonwealth, there's been um, over a million new unemployment claims reported. Um, The unemployment rate has risen to 16.3% as of May, Um, and that's, you know, 300 basis points above the national average, which if you were looking at this data back in February, that was definitely not the case. We were one of the strongest economies in the country. So things have really sort of shifted due to the pandemic. Industries that are bearing the brunt of these job losses, unsurprisingly, it's leisure and hospitality, construction, retail trade, all of those industries that have been severely impacted by the economy sort of essentially shutting down for 10 weeks. Um, Meds and Eds, historically a stable driver of the economy here in Massachusetts, you know, still sort of contending with some of that issue with the pandemic. Students have had to go home to do virtual learning, um, elective procedures and routine visits have been impacting the bottom line at a lot of our hospitals. And finally, consumer-facing tech companies have also been reducing payrolls. I'm sure you've heard of Toast and Easy Cater and all of those announcements in the news. You know, those tech companies have been pretty severely impacted by everything that's been going on. So consequently in greater Boston, you know, on the property market side, we've seen office assets and retail assets sort of facing some pretty stiff headwinds, um, yet multifamily, life science, medical and academic, those seem to be faring better Uh, during during this time, and I would say logistics and industrial distribution ablaze with activity. That's just really been a bright spot here for commercial real estate um, in Greater Boston. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Mark, uh, my colleague, who's going to give some color and detail um, to this
3: narrative. Thanks, Liz. Nicole, I just wanted to point out that you had a hard time believing Juliet's been in the business 20 years, but you don't have a hard time believing I've been in the business 35 years. So I'm going to let that one slide. It
1: says something about Juliet, not you,
3: Mark. (laughs) Um, Just to follow up on Liz, I think she touched on a lot of different food groups in terms of what we're seeing in the different sectors, but just maybe to give a couple of uh, anecdotes on each um, very, very quickly is on the office side, we're all obviously experiencing um, the challenges in terms of getting back into the workplace and where I think a lot of people want to be in terms of the collaboration and the camaraderie and everything else. Um, you know, it's funny, we were on a call recently with uh, Blackstone, which is sort of the, the the ultimate New York City firm. And their comment was, um, forget about how it's going to work when our employees get to the office? We're just concerned about getting them into the office in terms of public transportation. So we're thinking about, like a lot of Boston firms are, this hub and spoke strategy where they would keep their headquarters in the city, have a suburban office where they have more parking, so it's easier for associates to kind of come and go. Um, on the on the rest, so I think kind of the three sectors that have been the hardest hit, as Liz mentioned, were office, retail, and co working. On the retail fronts, mainly restaurants, unfortunately, we were on a call on Friday where somebody made the prediction that probably 30 to 50% of the restaurants will not survive, particularly um, fine dining, Uh, will be particularly hard hit with potentially 50% of those no longer existing when we come out of this. And co-working, probably to nobody's surprise, given uh, the required protocols around safety and so on and so forth, We have a a local client who's sort of the preeminent um, co-working provider. They see themselves being in a hospitality business and they had initially estimated that their business was was gonna be off over 10%, they're over 20% right now. So I think it's office, retail and co-working as Liz mentioned. Liz also touched on the fact that kind of the bright bright spots have been logistics around Amazon. I mean, the Amazon and Wayfair stories are just crazy. Amazon's in the um, market right now with 25 to 30 requirements for just-in-time delivery, wanting to be close to major, and that's just in the Boston area, wanting to be as close as possible to the the major metropolitan areas. We were working with a life science company a year ago that was looking for a manufacturing facility to be within an hour of Cambridge, and we told them then we need to be cognizant of the fact that we're gonna be bumping into the Amazon effect, which is any box inside of 495 is gonna be scooped up by Amazon. So as a result, there's this huge wave of demand. And we were on a call with uh, Carlisle Group the other day and they said that they bought a logistics facility in Northern New Jersey in early 2019. They filled it and flipped it and in 18 months, they had a six X return. So I think that speaks to kind of the velocity and the momentum in the logistics and supply chain side. One thing that we are seeing is um, kind of blurring into life sciences is, is that there's a lot of money in the sector and a lot of optimism around a lot of the exciting new science in the life science sector. But that, the, the, I would say that the activity has been somewhat muted because of the logistical challenge for these companies trying to operate. But we're seeing a lot of companies trying to bring manufacturing back in-house and have that be within an hour of Cambridge. A lot of these early to mid-stage companies have had issues with their CMOs either cost or reliability, so they want to eliminate that risk factor. And again, we're not talking about big pharmaceutical manufacturing facilities. A lot of these are preclinical, so we might be talking somewhere in the range of 80 to 100,000 square feet. And that's an additional wave of industrial demand that we're seeing in the suburbs colliding with Amazon, making it very, very difficult for a lot of these companies to find those types of facilities uh, inside of 495. And then the only, and, and one I out there is that we were on a call recently with uh, Bruce Walker from the Reagan Institute, and his comment was around the lab was because a lot of our clients are saying, look, you cannot Zoom meeting from the lab. You, you can't do that from your kitchen. You need to be in the lab doing science. So we're seeing a lot of our life science clients going to two and three shifts per day. Bruce Walker's comment was, people need to start thinking about the workday as 24 hours and trying to do two to three shifts in the lab in order to continue to advance science. So a lot of these companies 12 months from now can get their financing. Um, As Liz said, medical academic, a lot of the hospitals, even with elective surgeries and revenue down, a lot of them are looking to expand and are looking to take down large blocks of space. So coming out of this, I do think it's gonna continue to be logistics, life science and medical academic that are gonna be uh, the drivers. And the one that kind of puzzles me last is, is the multifamily. Right, um, Student population has always been a huge driver there. Uh, so far defaults, especially in the better products seem to be you know, minimal in terms of uh, rent collections. They seem to be high clearly in the better projects. And I think the, the telltale there is going to be what happens with a lot of these schools come fall, whether these students are coming back into the city because they're probably the biggest demand driver in the multifamily. So those are kind of the seven different food groups that we're tracking. Um, and how we're seeing each of them being impacted. And I think I think, you, uh, I think we wanted to just take two minutes for Juliet to touch on what we're hearing from our clients in terms of their concerns around uh, operating in a COVID environment.
4: Exactly. Thanks, Mark, and thanks Nicole and Mike for hosting us today and, and letting us share some of our research and our thoughts. But we've been talking. We've been very very busy these last couple of months talking with our clients and. They've been sharing with us what some of their biggest concerns are um, about going back to work and just in general with their business and really there are two things that have stood out um, the first group of things is the really the things that they can't control things like what is it going to be like when we all go back to work and the roads are are trafficy again and the commute is terrible how are we going to get upstairs into our 33rd floor of our building when we can only have two people in an elevator What's going on with schools? What's going on with um, childcare? So all of the things surrounding the operation and the things sort of outside of their control are the things that are keeping them up. And one of the interesting things that we've noticed for every company that says that this um, working from home has worked out very, very well and people have managed to be productive, there's another company that, that cancels out that statement and says, we can't get, wait to get back to work because, um, we've lost our ability to interact and to have spontaneous ideas and spontaneous meetings. So there really hasn't been one clear trend yet as to to forecast whether or not people are going to stay home or go back to work. But for those that are going back to work, it's really the things outside of the workplace getting to work um, that are concerning them. And then secondly, when we sort of survey our clients about their concerns, um, what we've heard consistently with our laboratory uh, clients, those in the R and D phase, is how do we increase our on-site population while maintaining six feet distances? A six feet distance. And Mark referenced um, the, the the staggered and the shift work. We were with talking with a client this morning, and they have gone to a seven day a week um, schedule with three cycles, with a six to 12, a 12 to six, and then a six to midnight, and develop some very sophisticated software where where employees log in and log when they'll be there. Um, So they've been very, very adaptable, but as we know that the laboratory work and the research and development can't happen at home, so it's how do we work creatively? How do we um, reorganize our furniture? How do we do our shifts? How do we get people in when we're only, when we're so limited by the physical constraints and also by only at this point being able to bring back 50% of our workforce. So I think with that, that it sort of concludes um, sort of our section and we'll hand it back to to, to Mike and Nicole. But happy to stay on to and, and insert our comments and, and join the conversation where we can.
0: Great. Thanks, Juliet. Thanks, Elizabeth and, and Mark. Um, as Juliet mentioned, we're, we're going to shift now to more of the kind of some of the issues and questions that Nicole and I have been dealing with and seeing on a daily basis uh, since all of this hit a few months ago. Um, but the goal is to uh, try and have this be a little bit interactive between Nicole and myself and also the Newmark team, just kind of jumping in to give all our perspectives on some of these issues. Um, so, where we were going to start. Um, was uh, really where I think kind of the issues we were dealing with started, kind of the questions we were getting at the beginning when this wave hit. And that was, you know, the question of, you know, in light of COVID and shutdowns, do I need to keep paying my rent? Uh, Do I have some other mechanism to try and get some relief uh, from having to pay my rent or other obligations? Uh, So when it comes to the lease itself, uh, I think, what happened when this all happened a few months ago is, is tenants, you know, businesses had more to worry about than just their leases, of course. But when it came to the lease, they looked at it and came to the realization if they didn't realize before that except in very limited circumstances, um, rent always stays due uh, under the lease. Uh, and there's you know, limited exceptions, uh, most notably casualty, uh, condemnation, and, and service interruption which we'll get to a little bit later. Um, but other than those exceptions, general, generally speaking, rent stays due despite everything that's happening. Um, but there were a common thread of arguments I think we saw among tenants and the two we were gonna hit on uh, were force majeure, which I think a lot of people have been talking about in the last few months. And the other one is service interruption. Um, on force majeure, um, and just kind of as a general statement on a lot of these issues, you know again, we're not in the same room. So we, we would usually kind of poll people experience levels. And so on some of these, we might do a little bit of a, just a high level overview of some of these points. So, uh, but um, on force majeure uh, leases, like most contracts have force majeure provisions, uh, or at least most of them do, uh, which excuse a party or both parties from performing a particular obligation if they're delayed from performing that obligation. Um, and for the most part, if properly drafted from a, from a landlord's perspective, um, those provisions shouldn't uh, allow a tenant to get off the hook for paying rent. Um, but throughout these last few months, it ha- it's never that simple. You have to look at the language in the lease. Um, and uh, some forms, so we've been doing, I don't know what Nicole would say, but I've probably looked at more force majeure provisions recently than I had before Um, and in some of them uh, if you know in the office set or I guess in in retail sometimes this isn't the case in other areas but mostly in the office setting you're working almost always from the landlord's form of lease and some of those forms have just a one-sided force majeure provision so it only applies to landlord Uh, so in that instance this question is should be fairly simple the lease addresses the force majeure issue it only applies to the landlord. And so tenants claiming uh, the benefit of that provision when it on its face doesn't apply to them, um, aren't gonna be able to avail themselves of of that relief. So there, the analysis should be pretty simple. Um, But in most cases, you're looking at a lease that has a a mutual force majeure provision. So it excuses both parties in certain instances of certain obligations. Um, And the key point we wanna mention here is from a landlord's perspective kind of going forward. And when you're looking at these provisions, um, they should have two key concepts. I and mean, we really they should have a few concepts, but the two I wanna mention here are um, any force majeure provision in a lease from a landlord's perspective should carve out rent as an obligation. It should never be an excuse for paying rent. Um, and secondly, and somewhat related, uh, you know, lack of funds, financial inability, shouldn't, shouldn't ever be considered a force majeure event. Um, so again, if you have a provision like that, the question should also be fairly simple. Um, uh, but the two, two things that I want to mention on this point is, uh, one, just kind of a minor sidebar uh, on the that monetary carve out I mentioned, if you are drafting a lease from a tenant's perspective. Um, so if you're starting from a lease that has... Uh, one-sided force majeure, you make it mutual. On that monetary carve-out, uh, oftentimes, most of the times I think in leases, it's one, that's one-sided, you should make that mutual also, particularly in this situation that we're seeing. Um, you know, landlord has monetary obligations too and paying tenant improvement allowances for instance. Uh, and so force majeure shouldn't be an excuse on that side of the coin either. Um, and the other point before moving on from force majeure is, is a recent case that came out that um, is actually out of a bankruptcy court, uh, and it may not have much applica- it Actually, doesn't have applicability here. It's in, it's out of Illinois, and just in, in case you're interested, it's in Ray Hits Group, H I T Z Hits Restaurant Group, um, and it was a bankruptcy court again, Illinois law, um, but it interpreted a force majeure provision in a restaurant lease, and it interpreted that provision to reduce the restaurant tenant's rent obligations by seventy-five percent uh, over the last few months, um, and in in. I'm not sure if the, the court necessarily got it right, um, but it raised some issues, at least from my perspective. Um, one is that the, the drafting of that force majeure provision wasn't great, which highlights all the things I just mentioned, the importance of drafting it correctly. That lease, as I mentioned, it's important to have those two carve-outs, rent never excused and lack of funds never force majeure. And that lease had the latter and not the former, didn't have the rent is never, Excused, and the court went through an interpretation again. I, I, I don't know if they got it right, but the pro, the point is that their drafting opened the door for them not to get it right. Um, so it's just key to get these provisions correct when you draft them. Um, and then the last point I'll mention is just as I read this uh, case, what jumped out to me is when I one of the first things I mentioned. Some leases have a one sided force majeure provision. Um, you may want to consider. Uh, you know, you discuss with your client from a landlord's perspective. It may be worth just from the get-go making that mutual to avoid the drafting risk that maybe happened here, where, you know, oftentimes you draft contracts. It's one-sided provision. You make two word changes. Seems reasonable. You accept it, but it could end up in results like this. So it may be, may consider just starting from a mutual provision and making sure it's drafted properly. Um,
1: just add in here, Mike, so uh, obviously Mike and I both practice on both the landlord and the tenant side. So this is a a little bit tough because um, for the most part, when I was having these conversations in March and April, it seemed very much to just stick it to the tenants, right? There's just not a lot of opportunity here in the force majeure provisions. And so I had a couple questions coming out of this. One, you know, is there going to be a more tenant-friendly version of force majeure? And thus far in the market, I am not seeing that, right? I'm seeing folks Try to draft around this issue in terms of risk allocation that we'll talk about later with things like delaying rent commencement dates, uh, you know, blowing through free rent periods, things like that. But I'm not in the market seeing a willingness to ask or have answered this question about whether or not it's a reasonable thing to have tenants not be responsible for paying rent in these sorts of, you know, if there's a second wave of COVID or things along those lines. And the the other thing that I will mention is. Uh, after that case count came down uh, in Illinois, uh, you know, I think folks are concerned about this, and rightly so, in basically every jurisdiction, because we know for a fact there's going to be a wave of litigation about this. Uh, I think particularly in uh, the retail context and restaurants. I'll talk later about the cases that are happening in New York right now related to uh, impossibility and impractic- impracticability, but You know, I think we're going to see more decisions where judges are sort of trying to make a fair, quote unquote, outcome that had no uh, relationship to the language that was drafted in the lease. And so um, we'll see where we go from here. But uh, if there's any landlords out there that are not willing to play ball with tenants, that's a potential uh, downside is that you could have to litigate one of these provisions and the outcome may be different than what you had intended in the contract.
0: That's a good point. Um, and, and another thing Nicole mentioned that I would agree with, and it's hard to, you know, what the entire new market team uh, said is that there's not a lot of deal activity, at least in the in, um, office retail space, kind of new leases. We don't have a, a, a great barometer as to where things are going to go going forward, but Nicole hit on it. But I know in the very small sample size I've seen, I had one deal. Um, that was under letter of intent going back to last fall. It's been dragging on for a while. So we obviously predated COVID. Um, It went on pause as in the business terms were renegotiated. That deal was agreed to. um, And that new LOI was ready to be signed. And at the last minute, the tenants board came back and said, one more issue need this. We want to update the force majeure provision. Here's our provision. Um, And our, client landlord client held the line there. It's still not something that fundamentally there might be some some tweaks here and there and how what you define force majeure, but fundamentally so far, again, I, it, I don't think that that fundamental concept of force majeure not excusing the obligation to pay rent will change. Um, uh, similarly, uh, a different concept in the lease, uh, service interruption provision. I won't uh, stay on this one as long, uh, but most leasers have, a concept of rent abating, as I mentioned at the beginning, if there's an interruption in services. And the intent really, what that provision is getting that is if you know utilities go out um, and it's 110 degrees in the space in the summer or 20 degrees in the winter. Um, or the elevators go out and you're on the 40th floor and you can't get to the space. Uh, but those provisions also, depending on how they've been drafted, um, can also lump in um, access to the space as being a trigger. Um, and so we've seen a lot of tenants, at least. I have on my end that have tried to leverage that provision uh, as again, on the topic we're talking about uh, to get out of rent. Um, And again, like force Majeure, you have to look at how the provision is drafted. Um, And obviously people are going back and looking at these with uh, a different lens right now. Um, I still think that uh, going forward, I don't know if that, that if again, similar on force Majeure, the bottom line, if if that provision is drafted, how it should be, it it should not uh, let a tenant out from rent. but there are some arguments there, depending on how they're drafted. You know, if they specifically include access, if they don't include other parameters such as, you know, that trigger has to make the space untenantable. There's other parameters to these these provisions, Um, but there are things you have to go back and look at and make sure that it doesn't uh, open the door from a landlord's perspective to a tenant uh, getting off the rent hook uh, for an interruption in that particular service, if if the lease says that access is such a service.
1: We'll also mention that this is an argument that even if it's not a winning argument for tenants, we are certainly seeing tenants make it on uh, certain portfolios. So uh, on, on my landlord side representation, I'm getting a lot of, you know, nasty gram letters that, you know, emails, things like that. They're like, well, we couldn't access our space. So it's a service interruption. So uh, we're entitled to our rent. And it's like, they, they looked at the lease, but they didn't really look at the lease. Right. So it's up to us as the attorneys and the representatives of these folks to really dig into that and see how these provisions work together. For better or worse, you know, with certain portfolios, you're going to find inherited forms that are just not good, right? That you're, you've are you got this sort of interplay that was clearly never intended. So you have to be very, very careful with the way that you're drafting these provisions on a going forward basis. You know, and one thing that, you know, we've sort of had as a mantra on the landlord side is, 24 seven access should never trigger an interruption of services provision. And you have to be very careful about the way that's drafted because oftentimes they tie back to landlord services, which are quite often including access to the space.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's just a point that just is always with these leases, there's so many interconnecting parts um, to them. uh, And and it's just kind of a big picture critical part. These these are examples, If, if you draft the service interruption provision to say something that seems reasonable. If I can't get into my space, I don't pay rent. Um, But it ties into what does service mean under the lease? And you go to that provision and then it, I mean, you get into interpretation of what does the section heading say? And there's provisions in the boilerplate that say you don't interpret the section headings to try and interpret. And and there's all these moving parts and which is why leasing like any contract, but I found in leasing in particular, it is so critical to understand those moving pieces. Um, because you can do one thing incorrectly in one spot, not really realizing the impact it has someplace else. Um, So those were two uh, arguments that we've seen come up, I think on the leasing side, just kind of the document itself and can on this rent issue. Um, On other rents, uh, you know, other, you know, levers of relief that tenants have had, just one quick uh, reference. Uh, Obviously a lot of tenants have been looking at PPP loans. Uh, you know, the program under the CARES Act that gives uh, loans to certain businesses uh, that are potentially subject to forgiveness, um, either partially or in full. Um, And, you know, the purpose of those loans, of course, is to incentivize uh, employers to keep employees on the payroll. Uh, So the large bucket of those funds are obligated to go towards payroll costs, but it applied here um, because the, the act did call for uh, certain non-payroll uh, costs, including rent, you know, subject to certain caps uh, that your uh, loan could be put towards and potentially subject to forgiveness. So it's come up a lot in our discussions. Um, so, you know, we'll get into it in another context in a, in a little bit. Um, but that PPP loans, that was one other way that tenants have tried to look for relief here uh, over the last few months. Another one we've seen is business interruption insurance. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about you know whether business interruption insurance should be triggered uh, in the current environment, um, and bottom line, we have not seen that that work based on you know the, how the policies are written. Uh, you know, business interruption is a coverage that provides coverage for business loss uh, if there's some sort of uh, interruption or inability to use the insured property uh, because of some external event. Um, and so tenants obviously here tried to make the argument that that external event was COVID nineteen, and they obviously couldn't use the leased premises as they normally would. And so business interruption they hoped would kick in, um, and, and and it hasn't. Uh, in large part because of two key reasons: business interruption policies usually require there be some physical damage, um, and here you know absent you know there really isn't physical damage to the actual insured property here, the leased premises, um, and. And so in the leasing context, the reason business interruption usually comes up is is to cover, you know, casualty. Um, You know, property insurance covers actually putting the leased premises back to its condition, whoever landlord or tenant is covering that policy, the physical damage. But then business business interruption applies to make sure the business itself makes it through. It can keep paying rent. Um, And oftentimes that's a credit question, whether, you know, a tenant, you know, how much business interruption coverage is required. But that's the context that that coverage is really meant to apply, physical damage. Um, And on top of that, it it also has to be physical damage that's considered a covered peril. Um, And most of these policies, pretty much all of them exclude uh, viruses. That's the other prong that has made this argument uh, not work for tenants, um, unless there's some sort of overriding endorsement. Um, if, If virus is the underlying issue, that's not gonna be a covered peril. Um, So that has not been a mechanism I've seen uh, tenants succeed with. Um, There was some, uh, there's been some legislative talk on this issue uh, in really at the federal level across states here in Massachusetts. um, A state senator, uh, Senator Eldridge, introduced a bill that would have required insurers uh, to have business interruption if it were, you know, in place before this happened, uh, apply regardless of what the policy said. Um, and those payouts would have been backstopped by the state ultimately, or at least mostly. Um, but that bill hasn't passed, and there are similar rumblings at the federal level of, of things like that. That also I've not seen traction on. So, um, but this was another, you know, talking point that a lot of people have been going through, and I have not seen it, it work in the tenant context. Um, so those are two mechanisms: PPP loans, business interruption. Um, just one last point on this. You know, uh, there's been a lot of legislative measures that have Um, come out uh, over the last few months, Uh, you know, pretty much every state at this point has a COVID type statute covering all sorts of areas. uh, And, and most of them have one that, that does impact in some way, the commercial landlord tenant relationship. Um, You know, there's, there's surveys out there, you know, we can't go through all of them. Obviously there's a few we wanted to mention quickly, you know, in, in Washington DC, there's, you know, measures that, you know, for retail tenants, uh, it it may prohibit, you know, increases in rent or obligate landlord to consider certain rent repayment plans. Um, Also language that in some cases allows landlord to get you know mortgage relief on their end and then be required to pass that mortgage relief through to their tenants in the way of rent deferrals. Um, California uh, you know Senate Bill 939 in California has been getting a lot of attention. Um, You know it would potentially give tenants again retail and I think really largely hospitality um, you know, certain rights to negotiate, uh, renegotiate economic terms and existing leases. And if you can't come to an agreement with, within a certain period, potentially terminate your lease. So these are, you know, potential major uh, implications uh, in, you know, in this landlord-tenant relationship. You know, that hasn't passed, um, but those are the types of things that are being considered. Um, in Massachusetts... Just
1: a note, so my understanding is as of Friday, um, that bill in California is considered stalled, and so it's likely not to be picked back up. But uh, I guess to that point, I mean, this stuff's changing every day, right? And it's terrifying because that would severely impact pre-existing contractual relationships between parties in ways I don't think that any of us on this webinar could ever have anticipated, right? You, You could actually be forced to rewrite contracts that are in place for several more years. And so the fact that it made it as far as it did is really disconcerting.
0: Yep. In Massachusetts, there's really nothing to that level yet. Um, you know, the, the, the eviction moratorium had a had a concept of late fees and for certain tenants being waived, but there hasn't been anything that's really come close in Massachusetts. Um, but, but that was kind of the, the issues that we've seen on kind of the legislative front. Um, Nicole, I don't know if you had other, I, you know, I was going to try and, I know we're, I wasn't going to stay too much on rent relief agreements, but I don't know if you had something in between. Then. Yeah,
1: so, and, and um, so big picture also, Mike and I probably have enough information for seven different webinars here because for better or worse, this is all new, right? I mean, we're all sort of swimming in the same uh, pool here uh, blindly for better or worse. And so we're just trying to amalgamate as much information as humanly possible for you guys. Um, so one thing I did want to mention is that's where we've come, right? That, that we've been there since March, April, May, now most of June. So where are we going? Um, I think the next uh, big wave is going to be litigation. And so uh, last week, I think, uh, maybe even the week before, there were a couple cases in New York uh, that are really companion cases with Victoria's Secret. And I think uh, Bath and Body Works, where they're uh, basically trying to ask the court to set aside their leases Uh, in various different forms, uh, you know, set aside, rescind them, um, modify them, you know, they're just throwing everything against the wall and it's related to frustration of purpose and the doctrine of impossibility. Now obviously these cases are super uh, fact-specific because they relate to uh, flagship locations in the heart of New York City, so I don't know that this would certainly apply on a going forward basis, but they're basically asking the court to set it aside because the underlying deal, which was it was going to be the most trafficked location in you know the world, uh, meant that that was the underlying thought process behind the lease. And so I think all of us are, are waiting with bated breath to see where this is going to go, but for better or worse, litigation takes years. And so I think it's going to take a really long time for us to see where these sort of things are going to shake out, you know. I know that I've uh, availed myself of our litigators quite a bit, and you know, when I ask them of, about things like doctrine of impossibility and frustration of purpose, it's a very fact-specific, very tight box. And so, thus far, you know, I haven't certainly haven't been asked about a, a fact situation that I thought would have met those criteria. But I guess we're going to see um, through all of this litigation in, in various different jurisdictions what that actually looks like. And so I think be on the lookout for folks to actually litigate some of this stuff on a going forward basis, mostly in the retail context.
0: No, that's a good point. Um, so as Nicole mentioned, there's just so much here that's coming up that, that we can get to. So I'm going to, you know, for instance, you know, what we just talked about was tenants, you know, trying to get out of rent. What does the lease maybe say? What do, what do, do legislation, other common law arguments that tenants might have? Um, and I have a whole section that I'm just trying to pick out some of the key points because we just don't have time to get to all this stuff. Um, but a lot of where I've seen, I've probably looked at 50, 75 of these agreements. You know, all those were kind of unilateral arguments that tenants are trying to make. But how I've seen this come more about is, you know, mutual agreements between landlords and tenants on how to come up with some sort of relief package. Um, and, and so I've probably looked at, you know, I've seen them called rent deferral agreements, rent forbearance agreements. They're just lease amendments. They're just ways to get tenants through this. Um, Cause, and for the most part, I've seen landlords and tenants cooperate. You know, obviously every situation is different, um, but I will very quickly touch on just some points in these. Um, Cause even though the wave, first wave may have stopped, um, I'm starting to see second waves of these types of agreements come through. So you're still gonna see these if you're operating kind of the landlord tenant sphere.
1: And I think um, part of the reason for that is when this first happened in March, uh, everybody had paid March rent generally at that point. so we were talking about April's rent. Uh, a lot of these deals, especially in the retail context were for a quarter, so three months. So July 1 is the end of that quarter, which is why I think we're gonna see a lot more of these. So anybody who you know pulled the trigger quickly, I think on a portfolio wide basis, I've only seen that in the retail context. Uh, those guys are coming around again.
0: Right yeah I mean because that's so just kind of fundamentally on these agreements who many of you have seen but if you haven't um, you know sometimes they're rent abatements um, actually landlord's giving free rent because that's what the tenant needs to get through um, but most of the ones I've seen are rent deferrals so there's no rent that's free at the end of the day it's just the obligation to pay is being pushed out for a while um, so fundamental structures of course and rent deferral agreements you know, what is being deferred, be clear on that. Is it just fixed rent? Is it also operating expenses, taxes? How long is the deferment for? What portion, is it all of that? Whatever bucket of rent you've defined, is it 30% something else? Um, when does it need to be repaid? Um, obviously those are just the fundamental deal terms that landlords and tenants are agreeing to is interest applied to the repayment demotes. Um, but just other things to keep in mind when you're looking at these agreements. Um, In addition to the scheduled repayment plan that all of these agreements call for, because again, rent's being deferred, it needs to be repaid at some point. Um, And there's also concepts in these, in addition to the planned repayment for kind of early triggers on repayment, um, one being default clawbacks. So particularly in the partial deferment context, so half of rent is being deferred. The tenant doesn't pay the other half. Um, That voids the deferment. Everything's due. Um, So there's default clawbacks there. Just make sure the drafting, if you're from a tenant's perspective, that you're given the benefit of notice and cure potentially uh, before that clawback is triggered. Um, uh, Some of these agreements require business interruption proceeds to what we just talked about, to be applied towards an early repayment of the deferment. Uh, Probably not applicable for the reasons we talked about, but you need to look at the language because it might obligate your tenant client to do something that it has no intention of doing, meaning make a business interruption claim. Similarly, on PPP loans, these agreements often say if you get a PPP loan, you're obligated to put it towards uh, an early repayment of the deferred rent. Again, just look at the language and make sure your client is actually planning on, on doing that. And the ship sailed most for the most part on actually applying, um, but I've seen tenants say the language in these agreements just isn't what I'm doing. I can't do that. It's going to violate my ability to get my PPP loan. Uh, forgiven. So just make sure whatever language is in these agreements is actually something your tenant has done or is planning to do. Um, These agreements often also have confidentiality provisions. Landlords don't want other tenants to find out what rent deferral package the tenant on the floor below or above is getting. Um, So they almost all have some sort of tenant confidentiality obligation. As a tenant, you might want to consider making that mutual, um, because as I've seen these discussions, it's almost always tenant comes to landlord says, I need some relief. Landlord's first reaction is almost always, let me see financials and business plans come you know, here. How you doing? What's, what's gonna happen when you come back? So some pretty sensitive material is given from tenant back to landlord. So it can evaluate what deferral package to give. So tenant might wanna make that confidentiality benefit them too. Um, sometimes these agreements build in extensions of terms, because um, like Nicole mentioned, for these three month deferrals, um, Rent was deferred, you know, maybe April, May, June, come July, not only is July rent going to be due 100%, but you might have a 50% kicker. So it's just going to be really hard for some of these tenants. Um, so some way of getting around that is to instead extend the term and not have rent increase for any particular month, but lump the deferral as an extended term. Um, and then just one last point, a lot of these agreements contemplate uh, the security deposit being drawn down to a uh, so it's not really a deferral of rent. It's a it's an agreement to draw down whatever security deposit the landlord's holding, and what's being deferred is the tenant's obligation to uh, to uh, replenish that deposit. So these agreements have been taking you know I, they started somewhat cookie cutter that I saw. It was kind of a package. Um, you you got them done quickly, and now it's the ones that haven't been signed. They haven't been signed because there's all sorts of different machinations that that are going on here. So just those are just a flavoring of things, but you need to read these things carefully because there's a lot of things that can be buried in them. Um,
1: Uh, Just as an admin note, so I know there's a couple of questions that have come in. Both of these questions have to do with uh, defaults and remedies uh, theoretically in my mind, if I'm reading them correctly. So we'll actually get to both of the answers on those questions in the next section.
0: Great, and and so um, I was gonna turn to that topic unless Nicole you had um, to try and get through some of these default remedies topics.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would, the only thing I would want to add in there is um, what I like to call the Starbucks effect. So um, if you are uh, getting any of the BizNow amalgamation emails, I'm sure that you're going to have heard about the fact that Starbucks did a, just a blanket letter to every single one of its landlords, uh, basically saying that it wasn't going to pay rent for a very long period of time. I think it was the entire year of 2020 or something along those lines. And obviously the knee-jerk reaction from their landlords, which are varied circumstances, some some sorts didn't even close during this time period, um, was very negative. And so I think if you are either representing a landlord or a tenant, you really need to be cognizant of the fact that this is a long-term relationship. And so when you're asking for these things, you need to have it be a conversation. You know, I I know I personally have sat in on, on several tenant side discussions with Mark Winters on the call, of trying to figure out what the thought process was here, you know, if we knew that the the tenant couldn't pay their rent or was going to be, you know, really looking down the barrel, or they had some other issue related to timing with COVID delays or things like that, you know, how we should approach their landlord, how we should have these conversations. So be thoughtful, um, regardless of what side you're on, about these conversations. On the landlord side, it's really uncomfortable to have to ask an LLC who's made a disbursement, you know, would you consider? Um, putting those funds back into the business, but you need to be having those conversations. Otherwise you're going to find yourself in the same position six months from now where the companies run out of money, but you've deferred all that rent. So you're in an even bigger hole than you would have been if people had been really honest about these conversations from the get go.
0: Yep. Um, so on some of these uh, default remedies issues, uh, just to on, on evictions and I start here just to kind of give a quick uh, a kind of uh on the eviction moratorium, because I know everyone's kind of heard that out there. Um, so there's obviously an eviction moratorium in place in Massachusetts that I think at the earliest could expire at the middle of August, um, but it, it applies to, and we're kind of focusing on the commercial side here, uh, to small business tenants, and the statute kind of de- defines the parameters, but it, it largely comes out to if you're a small business tenant therefore subject to this protection Um, if you have less than 150 employees and your business doesn't operate across multiple states. So I think for a lot of the commercial deals, or at least um, this may not apply, but if you have a commercial tenant that fits within the small business definition, um, the statute explicitly says it doesn't uh, give tenant the right to not pay rent or stop the landlord from exercising its rights, sending default notices, terminating the lease. Um, But if it needs court, Intervention, and that's paused uh, if you're a small business tenant uh, subject to uh, the moratorium. Um, But as a practical matter, just kind of across the board, whether you're small business, big big, business, there's just going to be so much of a backlog um, that you're going to have delays regardless if you've terminated a, a lease and you're trying to, you know, get a court to intervene through a summary process action. Um, you know, there's just gonna be a backlog for everybody. And so this will be something that landlords have a hard time uh, if if they do need to go the eviction route.
1: And for those people who are gonna ask next, what do we think the backlog is? Don't know, right? I mean, I, I just, I've had these conversations with a couple of landlords who had a default that predated COVID and um, it was fine for a while because everything sort of hit pause, but now they're like, well, shoot, we need to get these guys out, right? Um, so they're they're facing this issue of how long is it going to take if they have to go to the eviction route, and honestly, we just don't know. Uh, I think that um, in talking to some of our colleagues, there was already a backlog, you know, of, of something like, you know, six months before this even happened and in, in terms of getting court dates. So, I think you're just gonna see this getting a little bit worse and a little bit worse, um, depending on how long the courts are really shut down.
0: Yeah, um, so it's a little bit going backwards. Usually you think eviction would come at the end, but I'll kind of go back to default notices, which is usually where a termination process starts. Um, and I'm not gonna, you know, as I said, the statute doesn't, it, we're kind of sticking with Massachusetts. You know, landlords can send default notices still, but it's been kind of a dance I've found, kind of the how, what type of notice they're sending. You don't wanna have, you know, look like the, the landlord who's, who's sending a nasty default notice, but some still are because a lot of it's kind of depending on how the discussions are going with tenant. You know, it, so, um, but there are still default notices going out in many ways. So landlords can just preserve their rights and get, you know, cure periods under the leases uh, ticking. Um, but so, but it, it is something that each situation is different in terms of how landlords are approaching uh, tenants who go into default.
1: And actually that's a good segue into the other question that was asked because it is a very fact specific situation. So the question was, have you seen a landlord with multiple lease properties to one tenant retaining the security deposit and last month deposit on one expired lease because the tenants in default of another unexpired lease? What are the options for the tenant side? Uh, So unless there's cross default uh, language in the leases which sometimes you do in fact find in a form of a landlord who has multiple lease locations, especially in the retail context. Uh, I don't know how a landlord could uh, keep those funds from one lease to the other, that the contracts are separate. So, I mean, I'm not a litigator, so I I don't like to suggest what the options are. Um, My options are to call my litigators and say, what should I do? But um, in that case, I I can't imagine that you could uh, appropriately keep those
0: funds unless there was Um, Right. Um, and, and Steve, I'm not sure if you're just, I know we're kind of looking ahead and we still have some issues. I know you said we have a little bit of time. Do you know how much time we have after? Because like Nicole said, some of these points might be ones that if we don't get to it in as full detail as we we might, you know, we might just kick off into a, a phase two if need be. But how much do we have if we wanted to stay a little later? We have about 20 minutes. If uh, you guys want to continue talking, um, we can go up until 1.20ish. We don't have anything adjacent to this, so if, if you want to shoot for one twenty, we can do that. Great. So you could, like I said, there's just so much really to talk about here. So let's just get through as many of these as we can. And I think it's helpful to get into them in and is in a little bit of substance. And then if we need to just do a, a phase two, is you know it's free. We can all reconvene in a in a few weeks if we need to. Yeah,
1: uh, and, and feel free to email the BBA. Right, feel free to email Steve and say I'm really interested in this topic. Can you guys uh, focus on this? I mean, we you know obviously we're going to jump to the I think liability issues and the, the re-entry, but that in itself is probably an entire topic.
0: Right, and, and so just very quickly on a couple of kind of, just to uh, touch on some of these other remedies issues, just on, so you've sent a default notice if you have the cure period is lapsed and some landlords are deciding, you know, am I, should I terminate this lease? You know, that's what the process is usually. You send a default notice, there's a cure period, and then a landlord has a right to terminate. Um, the only thing I'll mention here, other than, as I mentioned, the eviction moratorium, if it applies, doesn't prevent you from doing that. Um, but the, the issue that I've seen landlords grappling with is the tenant who approaches the landlord and says, because again, if we're in this scenario, it's a tenant that's not coming back. It's one of those, I think it was Mark, who's, you know, the, the ones that the restaurant tenants that who just aren't going to be able to make a go of it coming out of this. And so landlords are, you know, how, how are we going to end this? Um, when it comes to the lease, uh, and so termination is what's going to ultimately happen, and really the two routes that this can go is a unilateral termination, uh, so landlord just terminating by notice as allowed under the lease, um, and just the just the, the grappling I've seen on the landlord side there is the tenant who asks the landlord and says, I'm just not coming back, um, I need out, I'm considering filing bankruptcy, um, can we work something out, and, and, and the landlords are deciding, do I engage in that type of discussion, or now that I know that's going to happen, maybe, do I just want to race to beat the filing and terminate the lease beforehand in which case you're sending a notice you're waiting for the cure period to lapse because the discussion is you know am I going to try and come up with a negotiation that ends this lease on terms that maybe cut some of my losses versus do I just want to avoid the bankruptcy process Um, because if you don't terminate the lease before that filing this lease will become an asset of the bankruptcy estate um, and it'll be subject to the tenant Debtor deciding to assume the lease, reject it or assume it and assign it and the tenant has some time to decide uh, which route it wants to go. Um, So the landlord's goal is just I just want out and a lot of landlord deciding I don't even want to engage in in a discussion. I'm just going to try and terminate as quickly as I can. Um, So that's kind of on the unilateral termination side and there's obviously other issues there. But uh, the other issue that I'm seeing here is parties who are coming to an agreement and saying we just are going to agree to part ways. Um, And so those are just termination agreements. And um, sometimes there's a termination fee. um, But, you know, I've seen a lot of these start to come in lately. um, And it's just a business deal and and making sure that you document, you know, how this lease is going to terminate and what terms are going to apply.
1: So I'm just going to jump in because we had a, a question come through via email about whether or not these types of agreements include estoppels. And so um, I don't know that I've seen one include a separate estoppel, but there are certainly estoppel type language, I think in, in the majority of these agreements that I've seen in terms of saying that you haven't sublet or assigned your interest in the lease and um, saying that you're not aware of any defaults, you know, things along those lines. I think certainly uh, the type of estoppel language you would see in any lease amendment, I think you'll oftentimes find it attached to these agreements as well. Mike, do you have the same experience?
0: Yeah, no, I agree um and so you know and i will nicole i know we're going to have a few minutes I'll, I'll jump to the liability issues um if we want to get there and just get through as much of this as we can in the next 10-15 minutes or so and then we can just kind of reconvene with issues that we want to get into in more detail
1: so um liability issues i know is a huge issue for for folks on both the landlord and the tenant side because don't forget that tenants are employers right they're occupiers of space and they have uh, liability to their employees that are coming in. So I'm sure, uh, like a lot of you, I've been listening to every webinar I can get my hands on um, related to back to work issues. I think I've got two <laughs> tomorrow. Um, and our firm put one out at the end of uh, May uh, and it's everything's just sort of evolving over time. So, you know, one thing in particular I wanted to point out is that CDC has very specific guidelines um, for employer information for, for buildings uh, and further directs building owners towards BOMA guidance. So BOMA actually assembled a, a task group across North America to develop these best practices for owners and managers who are uh, dealing with reopenings. And so uh, I think there are excellent resources out there for attorneys to look at. I think those at a minimum, you know, the CDC guidelines and um, the BOMA Uh, best practices for reopening are really important to look at. Uh, There are others out there as well, you know ASHRAE has very specific standards that you should take a look at related to uh, air quality because I know that this is one of the biggest topics about returning to work. Um, Big buildings have very specific requirements when their systems have been down um, or on a sort of low mode. For a long time because people haven't been in them, so they're going to have to flush their systems, they're going to have to um, get outside air in, it's going to have to happen for x number of hours, and so all of this stuff takes a lot of time. So if you're talking about getting back to office, it's not a, a quick easy fix, I think, for either building owners or occupants of those buildings. So I just think it's important to really wrap your arms around that information for both sides. Um, you know, Goodwin has the good fortune of having several offices, so we've been able to see a lot of information coming out packages from landlords and see what folks are doing in different jurisdictions. Um, Boston's been a little bit uh, later because our phased opening, I think, has been later than some of those other places other than perhaps New York. Um, but I know that uh, today is is part two of phase two. And I think it's still at 25% occupancy for office buildings in Boston. But uh, in large part from what I've seen in all the reporting, uh, people are not necessarily going back to the office buildings uh, even up to that certain capacity, because it's just taking so long for folks to wrap their arms around a lot of these requirements. And nobody wants to be uh, liable if somebody gets sick. And so I think we're still figuring a lot of this stuff out. but I would point towards those particular resources. I know that uh, last week the PLI also did a really good uh, presentation that I think I forwarded to Mike because we've both been on the lookout for one that was really good. Uh, And then there's a couple tomorrow with ULI and with this now as well. So I'll watch them for you. (laughs)
0: All right, so do you wanna shift to kind of, maybe one last kind of big substantive topic we get to is kind of space issues. um, and you know and one thing just to uh, touch on here, I don't, I don't know if we want to get into kind of the operational stuff, um, kind of the reoccupancy concerns, but it, it's, it's there's a lot to it
1: yeah I think I think it's it's hard to, to do this in a, in an hour for reoccupancy concerns, let alone um, in a, a few minutes. One thing I will say is, um, the, there are physical constraints that we've realized are an issue, elevators probably are the number one uh, that folks are realizing are a real problem because you can only fit so many people per elevator. Um, I think what Salesforce Tower was saying it was going to take six hours for people to get in every day and get up to their spaces, and that's not including anyone leaving during that six hours. So they, they would be stuck, basically, and that would have to happen every single day if folks were to get into those spaces. Uh, I know uh, Goodwin in particular has um, our office in uh, the New York Times building in New York, and so we've had to look at this um, very seriously about how we're going to get our folks into the office, physically into the office through the elevators. Um, you know, I, I have gone into the city once since March 10th, and uh, there were signs up, and it said no more than um, two people per elevator, and in parens, it said four and there were squares taped out on the elevator floor. And I was like, God, this is just, it's so confusing, right? It's so hard. So I think folks are trying to figure it out, whether it's technology, Um, you know, I've seen some interesting things about assigning people ticket times, like you're going to Disney World, but you're going to the office. And so you get to ride the ride during a certain time period and that's how you get up to the office. Um, You know, it's, I think, there's, there's a lot of room between now and and then. Um, I know that most folks that I've I've talked to in terms of the offices are really going to look at this again after Labor Day. So, I mean, we've got several months, I think, before people start returning to the offices in Boston uh, in larger numbers than they are now.
0: Yep, and and, you know, I'm, I'm just keeping an eye, you know, let's keep going because most people haven't dropped off. It's 101 and people are still here. So let's try and get through as many of these as we as we can. Um, and on this kind of space issue, you know, w- what we're talking about now is kind of, um, you know, right now, the issues that everyone's grappling with is how's, how I'm gonna get into the space. The other issue that's just impossible for people to know is how is this gonna impact my longer term need for space? Um, and, and how am I gonna account for that flexibility? Um, when, you know, some businesses are, as was touched on, you know, the remote's working for them, some it's not. And, and some people just don't know um, how much, how much, you know, per square foot am I going to need per person? And it's just, it's impossible for people to know, but what is possible to know is that it's going to be unpredictable for a little while for a lot of people. And so what we've been trying to think about is, you know, how are tenants going to try to in their leases Um, account for this flexibility, Um, and like I said, there isn't much of a barometer um, as to how this is going to come out, but some ways that that might come about in these leases um, is, you know, length of term. I'm not sure if tenants are going to be, you know, demanding less term on their leases. Obviously, the shorter the term, the, the, the shorter the obligation, the more flexibility a tenant might have. Um, You know, that was already a demand that was driving down term length, probably because of the, you know, reaction to co-working, which provided much more flexibility on that front. Um, But this is going to be another one when tenants say, I can't commit to 10 years. I don't know what I'm going to need in 10 weeks, let alone 10 years. Um, So term length might come down as one kind of uh, way to uh, have some flexibility um, on the back end. Another way is uh, assignment and subleasing. Um, obviously, subleasing activity is, you know, that's, even if it hasn't ticked up yet, it, it will. Um, and, you know, when it comes to ways for tenants to get out of their lease obligation, you know, obviously, lease term is one way, an exit strategy, just having a shorter term term lease. And subleasing and assigning is another way. Um, and, you know, obviously, under most leases, true third party subleases require landlord approval, landlord needs to be reasonable fairly simple, but, you know, I did a quick poll of the last few leases I've done, and the average assignment and subleasing clause is about five pages uh, long, so there's, they're lengthy, and I think they're going to be focused on even more going forward, as tenants want to, when they sign these leases, have uh, uh, rights to get out from under them, potentially, but landlords are equally going to be focusing on them, so assignment and subleasing is going to be a key area that people focus on. Um, I'm not sure if we'll see a rise in tenants asking for kind of early termination options, you know, signing up for a five-year deal with a right to get out after three, um, but that might be another option that tenants look towards in terms of just if they're signing up new deals right now, how do you have, you know, a little bit less of a commitment, Um, and kind of a combination of of a few of those um, is, you know, whether tenants might not only ask for a shorter term, um, so they're not bound and committed for so long, but have extension options that allow them to extend on less than all the space. That's usually something that only bigger tenants get. By definition, bigger tenants because they would be able to give back something less than all they have. But most extension options and leases are, if you lease three floors, five years, and you're given an extension option, your option to extend is to extend on those three floors. You don't have an option to extend on something less. Um, So tenants might be asking for some combination of all this: shorter terms and ability to not renew on the entire space Um, And that's just a few like, you know, tenants are going to be grappling with how do I sign a long term commitment in this environment. Um, And that's just some that came to mind, but I'm sure there's going to be plenty more.
1: And actually, since um, we do have the good fortune of having the Newmark team on, I would ask you guys this question. Are you seeing folks try to build in this sort of maximum flexibility yet? Or do we think that this is potentially to come?
4: I think we're always very careful and very diligent about the subleasing um, language that that gets negotiated and term is one of those um, points as well, and I think the shorter term typically the more flexible and I think what we're finding is that very, very few companies actually finish their, their term regardless of COVID. Um, but one thing that we are seeing as it relates to flexibility and safety is that we had a client that was looking at a piece of space on the first floor and looking at another option with a piece of space on the ninth floor. And it was very, very clear in the proposal and in the marketing of the space that there was a whole section section dedicated to how uh, the flexibility and the safety of the space that you could enter the space through an exterior door directly into the space, that there was ample circulation um, flow in the lobby, that, you, that, the, that the employees wouldn't be required to use any sort of elevator. So we are seeing sort of a change in marketing um, to, 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 to tenants to come to spaces that are more COVID-friendly than others, that um, along with flexible lease terms as well that they're going to be looking for.
3: We actually had our downtown group working with a private equity group, and they were looking at a bunch of different buildings. And then post COVID, they said, "All right, scrap the survey. Come back to us with options where we could have a dedicated elevator to our space." I don't know. I don't know if they were successful, but that was the request.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. No. I mean, the, the these types of requests are again. We haven't seen. They're going to be coming in. Um, and so Steve, just a quick update. What's our clock? Cause I'm actually looking there haven't been as many people drop off. So if we can get through kind of the next bucket of expense issues. And I think um, Steve, you said that this was being recorded. Um, so if we can try and get through this and maybe just save construction as a separate um, kind of topic cause there's a lot there. Um, what do we have? we go go up to 120, 125 if that works for you guys. Great, so let's get through um, the next couple and we'll see if we can, uh, try and cover as much as we may get through all of it. Um, so the next kind of issues that we wanted to just touch on briefly or kind of relate to what's been brought up a lot, but cost issues. Um, so, uh, and actually, sorry, I need to back up quickly. Uh, what we were just talking about was flexibility on shrinking. So tenants don't know the space needs they're going to have. And so how, what are some mechanisms that tenants might be looking for to be able to, you know, go from this amount of space to this amount of space, because they don't know what they need. The flip side of it is I'm not sure if the market will bear that, you know, landlords uh, don't like giving options to expand within buildings, as, but they're obviously pieces that are in a lot of leases and heavily negotiated. Um, the flip side of this is tenants, because they don't know their needs for space, maybe, um, you know, getting more leverage to negotiate options to grow within a building, because they, they sign up a new deal and they're gonna go conservative. They're gonna take a small amount of space, but they're gonna, even though maybe before this, didn't have the leverage to get a right to expand within the building or a right a of first offer or, or refusal. Um, but that's another mechanism, not only shrinking, but growing. So those are issues to just keep in mind as we move forward. Um, so costs, uh, just a couple of concepts to keep in mind on the cost issue. Um, obviously, uh, you know, COVID is impacting costs across the board. Right now, of course, in buildings, it's causing costs to be lower. Um, no one's in the buildings, or not many, and so some of the typical operating costs are pretty low. So, just one thing to keep in mind. Um, and this would have been for leases that were signed pre-COVID. Um, if you have a a base year deal, um, and again, just you know, just to kind of reset. Um, you know, in a base year deal, uh, when it comes to operating expenses, you know, one end of the spectrum, you have, uh, you know, gross deals, uh, when you know your rent is inclusive of everything. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have net deals, um, where you pay base rent, but you also pay all the costs of operating in, in the building and taxes. In the middle are base year deals where the landlord picks up Um, the actual operating expenses for the building for a particular year that's the base year and all the tenant pays when it comes to operating expenses are increases going forward above that base so if you have a base year 2020 um, the tenants only paying for uh, operating expenses starting in 2021 and they're paying the delta between 2021 and 2020 Um, so 2020 is obviously going to have a crazy inaccurate uh picture of what operating costs in a building should be. Um so if you have a just if you have a deal that was signed that has a 2020 base year, there's gonna have to be some um adjustments that are gonna that are gonna have to happen. And this the concept isn't foreign. Um, Most leases have what's called a gross up concept, um, where you know certain types of expenses are adjusted based on vacancy. Um but this is gonna be a whole different ballgame. So it's just something to keep in mind that Leases that have a 2020 base year, that's going to be artificially low by a great deal. So there's going to have to be adjustments, whether that's just doing a new base year or doing adjustments to try and come out to what accurately should it be.
1: I think it's also going to be interesting because it's artificially low in some aspects, but potentially artificially high in others, right? So if there are extra cleaning requirements, um, you know, if standardization, things along those lines buying PPE, buying the technology, you know, the touchless technology that is able to be passed through through certain categories, things like that are going to have the other side of the scale um, far outweighing what was expected from a base year. So I think um, what we will likely see in 2021 is a wave of audits. So if you're on the landlord side, certainly be prepared for that. And if you're on the tenant side, Review your time periods, right? Make sure that you're actually looking at how long you have to respond from the time you get your true-up statement.
0: Yep. And on your point about costs going up, that kind of segues to the next point. Just to kind of see how this all plays out. Um, uh, you know, once pe- once these buildings get up and running, the costs are going to go up across for a lot of services, um, like Nicole mentioned. Um, and so for leases that either that currently have what's called a a cap on controllable expenses um and and that's what it sounds like you know for certain costs that are within the landlord's control there is in the lease a cap on how much on a year-to-year basis expenses can go up Um, but these caps uh and they they have a lot of different pieces to them but fundamentally these caps only apply to controllable operating expenses Um, so fundamentally you would think that nothing related to COVID is within any anybody's control um, but as with a lot of the issues we're talking about, um, it, the question isn't that simple, and you need to look at how the lease is drafted. Because um, the question on on this bucket of kind of COVID cost increases, increased cleaning, sanitization, kind of across the board things that might go up, um, do those costs fall within the kind of controllable operating expense bucket? And this might not. I don't know if these caps are as frequent in in the Boston market, but they're 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 frequent in in leases elsewhere. So it's something to keep in mind um, because what this question will come down to is you know how does the lease define a controllable operating expense um and typically in the leases we uh do with these there's really is obviously different variations but there's really two ways that we draft that definition one unsurprisingly being favorable more to the landlord and the other being more favorable to the tenant um because again only a controllable expense is subject to the cap Um, So the narrower that definition um, of what a controllable expense is subject to the cap, the better for the landlord. Um, So, you know, the tenant friendly definition, these are just things to look back at leases that are signed and as you're signing ones going forward. Um, In a tenant friendly definition, a controllable operating expense are all operating expenses, um, except for a limited and exhaustive list of exclusions. So everything is subject to the cap, except a specific list, and that's usually things like insurance and utilities and snow removal, things you can't control, taxes, uh, permitted capital expenses, which is another issue we'll get to in a second. Um, uh, But here, things like increased cleaning costs, was that in the list that was agreed to? Um, If not, in that type of definition, uh, landlord may be eating some of those cost increases, depending on how, how it's structured. Is it a per line item is on the aggregate, but it's just an issue to keep in mind. The flip side on a landlord uh, friendly definition, it's, we define it as controllable expenses are um, the things that are within landlords control. Um, And you exclude from that a non-exhaustive list of things. And you include those same things, but it's a non-exhaustive list. So landlords always have the argument that, obviously this was not within my control. And they'll have an argument to say that, no, this is a cost that can be passed through. Um, So just another issue. And then obviously, as you negotiate these going forward, uh, it'll be careful to make sure how that, how that cost increase, who's going to eat that.
1: One thing I will mention that's not uh, normally clear from the drafting of these provisions is whether or not it's intended for these to be on an item-by-item item basis or as a full bucket. Uh, and I've actually had this become an issue, at, not in Massachusetts, in a different uh, state, where the tenant viewed it as as meaning it should be on a, a total bucket basis and the landlord viewed it as an item by item basis and the numbers were about $15,000 difference for mm-hmm. a year. So, uh, and, and my question was then, hey, brokers, what's the market, <laughs> right? So um, a poor team like me, Mark, had to get a question like that to say, what what are other commercial landlords doing in that market to see where we could go from there? So it's, you can try and draft around some of this stuff, but you're going to get questions uh, regardless. And I think this is going to be a big point of contention next year.
0: Yep, agreed. Um, and so then one last kind of expense piece is, um, you know, the expenses that we're talking about right now are kind of the typical ongoing operating expenses to maintain and upkeep a property um, that might spike. But there could be major costs that uh, landlords uh, need to incur here, or tenants. Um, you know, things like, HVAC system upgrades and ventilation and elevator uh, changes and how people are going to get in and out moving around to building kind of major capital costs and, and so the question here of course like on a lot of these issues is um, can those costs be passed through um, for your typical office building uh, those types of costs generally capital costs can't be passed through um, but pretty much uh, most leases have certain exclusions so again you're going to be In the weeds in these leases as to whether these costs fit within some exclusion to the general rule that capital expenses can't be passed through um
1: I, i mean i think that you know for all of us who argue on both sides of the ledger about whether or not this would be a life safety thing right i know um it's typical carve out that landlords can pass through anything that affects the life safety of a building so i think you know I don't know if an argument can be made that an HVAC upgrade needs to happen because otherwise you're not meeting certain ASHRAE standards for uh, a a healthy building. Um, But I think that it's gonna become an argument in the future. And so for all of us who were particularly concerned on the tenant side that you could drive a truck through some of these um, carve outs from the exclusions on capital expenditures, I think that we're gonna end up seeing what becomes of that.
0: Right, because I mean the other, Greg. Right, the exclusions that I think are kind of the market exclusions are the, you know, capital costs that a landlord and again, it, obviously each industry group is different. But I you know in this context, kind of an office type building, um, you know, cost that a capital costs a landlord incurs to save money. Those are that's a typical exclusion. Uh, another typical exclusion is capital costs that the landlord incurs to comply with a new law. Not not. To rectify a legal violation that existed before the lease, but if a new law goes into place after the lease gets signed, that type of capital cost can typically be passed through, amortized. Uh, uh, but you know, are there going to be new? Are there going to be new legal requirements, building code upgrades that are going to be required, and where this exclusion could come into play? And like Nicole said, then there's often these kind of other kind of catch-all buckets that, if they if they if they're there, um, some of these costs could be uh, Pass through via that that carve out. So who knows? And that's just what the lease says. What leases actually, what landlords actually do, might end up being driven by by market factors. Um, but there, it's it's an issue that will clearly be uh, flushed out as we move forward. Um, so I'm not sure what we want to do. I think. Um, I I mean, the construction piece that we haven't got to, there's some things that I think we could kind of maybe mesh together and kind of a a follow-up in terms. So I'm not sure if you want to try and address some things, Nicole, um, in a couple minutes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would just mention that, um, so for folks who are dealing with sort of the COVID consequences, um, one thing that's now becoming super um, um, apparent is that anybody who had a time period for a build-out is going to go over that time period if they were in the middle of their build-out. So anyone who has, you know, expiration dates on um, the time period that they can collect their tenant improvement allowances, um, anyone who has a hard date on rent's commencement date um, that was intended to be a build-out period, you know, things along those lines, we're recognizing that we got to go back uh, on the tenant side, we got to talk to the landlords. And for the most part, I will say landlords have been very receptive because it was a risk allocation that now in hindsight was totally unfair. Um, it's the same way if you know a landlord is doing the build out and their rent doesn't start until substantial completion. It's the same risk allocation, but then it's 100% on the landlord. Um, I haven't seen that position change in the market thus far. Um, what I have seen is um, not having caps on force majeure for outside termination dates and for abatement rights, because I think the market uh, pre-COVID if the landlord was doing a build out, there was going to be a couple different um, uh, periods of remedies. You've got say a day for day rent abatement if the space hasn't been delivered substantially complete within, I don't know, 30, 60, 90 days of the estimated delivery date. Sometimes you had a ramp up of a two day for day, you know, say 30 days after that date. And then you had some sort of outside termination, right, say six months after the estimated termination date, all of those we on the tenant side we were trying to negotiate caps on force majeure because it's not just an open book right. Uh, I had a deal that we were right in the middle of um, that we were negotiating this and obviously when we had no visibility into the horizon of the end of construction moratoriums that was a risk that landlords were unwilling to take and I get it. I get why they were unwilling to take that risk. So I think we're still figuring out where the market is but I think for the most part um, landlords have an unwillingness to do caps and force majeure. Um, I think tenants are trying to get more meaningful milestone termination rights that are earlier in the process so they don't get stuck at the end if there's another COVID wave. Um, I think that those are probably the most common that we're seeing these days.
0: Yeah and the, and the other thing I would say there is Okay, you're right. I mean, how, you know, one of the fundamental distinctions we see in leases is, you know, whoever's doing the work, there's kind of a fundamental fork in the road you take in terms of how you structure rent commencement, kind of who bears that risk of construction delay. You know, if landlords doing the work, they're typically the ones that bear the construction delay. If tenant hires the construction contract or signs a construction contract, they're the ones who bear the risk of delay. Like Nicole said that uh, there've been some changes there. I'm not sure if those changes will be permanent or if it's gonna be something that, uh, you know, uh, is just to get through this. Um, but the other thing is looking back at your leases that were signed before all this happened. Cause you said, a lot of times we negotiate these remedies that tenants get for late delivery. So particularly when landlords are doing work, they agree to a date. And if you miss that date by, you know, you, have, you might have a grace period. Um, but look back at those deals that you might've done a year or two ago. Um, because if there's a cap on force majeure, um, that cap might be exceeded um, or there might be obligations that you notify the tenant. There might be technical requirements and leases you've already signed that you need to make sure you're complying with. So, I mean, this is just a, a, an, an area that has caused probably, probably the most substantive issues that I've seen kind of come up in discussions lately. And pardon, I'm muting because there might be a baby screaming downstairs. Um, so I mean, there are,
1: it's probably that time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I So I, I, you know, we've obviously covered a lot, but we obviously didn't. We, we can't get into everything, and in some areas we had to go back quickly. So I'd ask everyone: this is recorded, so people here here now or people who tune in later, send the BBA, send Nicole, send me emails of issues that you know. Obviously, we might not have got got to all the questions, um, but this is going to be. We're going to have to do a, an Act Two of this, um, and so if there are issues that we didn't get to, and obviously we couldn't get to some in, in great detail, um, please email us, please email the BBA, us, Nicole, me, because um, we'd like to know what issues we should do for this when we reconvene in September and do this discussion again. But thank you to the Newmark team and for Nicole and for the BBA for putting this together. I know there's, there's a lot of impacts that we're dealing with. So hopefully we've at least covered some things that will raise issues on, on, on all of your ends. Thanks, Mike, for having us and Nicole. Thank you. thank you all.
4: Thanks everybody.
3: Thank everybody Thanks on all. On
2: yeah.
0: Behalf of the BBA. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.